You're listening to Diffuse Tap with Kenny Estes and Isla Krem. Today, we're speaking with Richard Titus, who many of you will have heard of. He's a serial entrepreneur and investor, founder of Andronic, and a fellow of the Creative Destruction Lab, one of the, if not the largest accelerators in the world. He touches on a lot of topics, including how the U.S. is at a severe risk of becoming a digital backwater. We hope you enjoy a fascinating discussion. Good morning, everyone. Hope you had good chats there. Fair warning, I might disappear at some point in the middle of this conversation because um, power outages are always fun. uh, And that's the thing we're dealing with at the moment. But welcome everybody to Diffuse Tap. For those of you who are new, we'll tell you about what's on base. This is the 63rd, number 60, oh, that's hard to point at. Number 63 weekly virtual event. So Diffuse Tap is. We're going to, today, we're going to talk briefly about the event and Diffuse. We're going to have a fireside chat with the man of the hour, Mr. Richard Titus. And then we're going to do two more rounds of breakout rooms, kind of like what you just experienced, but we're going to do it um, with an actual topic. So why? Well, Diffuse Tap is, like I said, weekly virtual event. 45 minutes is networking in small groups, so you can just meet people and alternatives across literally the world. 50 minutes, we have a speaker come in and talk about something of interest to the community. And then we do have recently started uh, in-person events. We had one in New York yesterday and then Miami coming up here at the end of the month. So if you want the same format in person with fewer expert speakers and more drinks, then uh, you should probably go check that out in Miami. Diffuse, we're an alt fund incubator. So we find alternative investment strategies, whether we have the domain industries in-house or we partner with people like Mr. AJ Salomon over there. And we uh, spin up fund vehicles around that strategy. So one of those is Diffuse Digital StableFi. It's an open-ended fixed income type product. It's actually DeFi, exactly what we're going to be talking about with uh, Mr. Titus here today. And then uh, another one is Diffuse Digital Third, our index fund for digital assets both live, uh, live vehicles. So today, I've, Richard, I've, I've plugged you twice now. I mentioned you twice now. Do you want to give, <laughs> give a brief introduction of yourself? Yeah, so I'm Richard Titus. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur, um, troublemaker, and uh, frankly, original. I think my original nickname was the Bitcoin Bear. So I read the white paper very early. I was a cypherpunk and a hacker growing up. And I was very intrigued by this use of encryption money. And then as I told the small group I was just in and then said, look, well, that'll never work, but that's cool. <laughs> um, I at one point had a laptop mining Bitcoin to pay my hosting bill when I lived in the UK. So I probably spent, you know, at today's prices, probably 20, $30 million on, on a $29 a month hosting bill. <laughs> um, but I always, I found this very fascinating. And, and about five years ago, I got really serious about it. It became apparent to me that we had hit that tipping point where this wasn't going away. Um, you know, I, I said to the other day, it doesn't really matter if you believe that Bitcoin is digital gold, the market has spoken and has decided it is. So for the period of time that it accepts it, it is absolutely a, a, a store of value. And in, frankly, a better store of value than, than the one uh, previously used, which was gold. Um, and I start, three years ago, I started a firm called ARC that did uh, crypto advisory and had a small investment fund. Um, we shuttered that fund last year. My partner is going to become an investment banker. And I've been very, very focused on two of the board positions I hold. So I'm on the board of uh, the foundation board of Diem, which used to be called uh, used to be called Libra, which is the originally started by Facebook, but now spun out. It's a stablecoin project. I can't talk too much about that because we're deep in a regulatory place right now. I'm also on the board of Icon, who are one of the leaders of enterprise software products, particularly a uh, 
multi-chain, multi-sig wallet, which is, um, is frankly, is getting so much traction. We don't have enough. We can't hire engineers fast enough. Um, and then I, I have a small investment fund on my own capital and, and I'm always uh, looking for new things to do. Beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Thanks so much. Appreciate the introduction there, Richard. Uh, Isla, do you want to kick us off with uh, questions? Yeah, happy to. Um, so we, we talk a lot about digital assets and the store value and Bitcoin, et cetera, but there's a whole new breed of revenue generating opportunities um, in the digital asset space, um, you know, trading and staking pools, et cetera. Uh, we'd love to dig into that. What are your thoughts on some of the more interesting revenue generating opportunities in digital assets today? So I, before we go in today, I think there's a, a bit, is what's funny about DeFi is most people don't know where this happened from. So um, a friend of mine, Bill Barrett, who founded Abra, um, but little few people know he's actually a cypherpunk like me. So he was the individual responsible for putting encryption in the Netscape browser back in the day. And the reason this is important is he built a wallet using basically synthetic, uh, synthetic contracts, smart contracts, to allow you to own multiple currencies without ever actually selling your currency. And he did this as an experiment, but then he built a wallet around it called Abra, which was relatively successful. And then some other people, Salt, Celsius, some of these early people began realizing you could use these same smart contracts, layered smart contracts, to pay people interest um, and to, do, to facilitate really, really fast borrowing and lending. And that was sort of the genesis of, of DeFi. It's now gone so much farther. And one of the things I think that's really interesting now about the space is that it's growing faster than our ability as humans to understand and process and measure risk. And so I think this is a, one of the big challenges for us today is actually the risk side. So I wanted to talk a bit about risk before we go into the, the, the bigger ways of making money. Um, you know, as we all saw in the news uh, in the last week, the biggest crypto heist, which I'm not going to call it a hack because it wasn't a hack in history, was $611 million stolen off Poly. Uh, and then I, I, most of it's been frozen. So it's not actually, it was a very unsuccessful hack in terms of measuring uh, criminal activity. But coming back to the ways of making money, I think what, what has happened is people have begun in the way that software does to iteratively innovate on top of those original, on the, on the smart contract, a sort of blockchain and decentralization and governance. And I'm astonished at how fast and how prolific that evolution has become. Gotcha. That, that is really fascinating. So what are some of the areas that you're seeing right now that, that are the most interesting? So you're saying that they're, they're iterating faster than humans can possibly keep up with it. Yeah. What are some of the so, things that just popped on that are so, fascinating for you? So, so I've seen a couple of interesting things lately. There's an interesting forking happening between enterprise products. So there's a lot of institutional funds moving into the space now, and they need different products. So I mentioned Icon, who's board us on, who does, who's doing multi-sig. Um, there's lots of tools you need when you're moving large amounts of capital through DeFi, particularly because any action can cause a market change. And, and so... There, there's, there's issues around that. There's also issues around borrowing and lending and, and having sort of predictability on gas fees. Um, another thing that's really interesting is a firm called Railgun. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that. So I'm using this as an example. There's a whole bunch of tools to obfuscate your wallet. Now, some people think of these things like Mixer or Railgun as, as tools for piracy or stealing or hiding theft, but actually they're just as good as defensive weapons against people trying to steal your crypto or even just identify what wallet it's in and then target you for an SMS hack or some other uh, vector attack. Um, 
The third thing I'm seeing, which I'm fascinated by, is the rise of sort of not just staking pool, but uh, uh, firms like the, like Blockdaemon that operate nodes as a service. So big enterprise plays, although they're not that big, actually, you can start a, a Ethereum staking pool for 17 ETH, um, where in, in many ways, the infrastructure has not kept the pace with the tools, software, and the amount of revenue flowing around these contracts. And that, I guess that, that revenue that is floating around kind of links up to a really important question I was also asked just now in the chat. Um, because of all that hmm. delicious revenue that's coming up, I think the government would love a slice of it. <laughs> so. Well, you know, so the, the tax thing, we talked about this in my small group. So I think, first of all, just so everyone understands how, how Congress works. And I did spend a bunch of time last week on the phone with various members of our elected representation. Um, I have some political connections. They grew in the last couple of years, both on both sides of the aisle, actually. Um, and I think that there was a poorly thought through amend or bill, bill written sponsored by Ms. Uh, Mrs. Warren. And when that got to the floor, it became very apparent. It had been poorly thought through. And after, you know, by amendment, I think the backroom deal was struck. Uh, a senator from Alabama killed it. And then there's a committee in the House which has been working on a far more interesting bill, which has done a better job of defining things. And I think you'll see reconciliation between those two efforts and probably the removal of a big chunk of these provisions when, when the House version of the bill, when it finally passes. But much more interesting to me was this idea that the world is bifurcated into proof of stake and proof of work, and that's all that's ever going to happen. And since I remember a time only a few years ago when there was no proof of stake, it's pretty obvious to me <clears throat> that this is just first of a many, many steps of evolution in this space. So I think it's really important for us to embrace and extend the innovation opportunities for all of these protocols. And I think there's probably room for five or six different kinds of protocols. And, and just the first two are proof of stake and proof of work. Um, the other thing to mention is taxation. The bigger issue here is that the funding behind all of this effort is really coming from entrenched players who are at risk being put out of work. So one of the things when I started looking at DeFi a couple of years ago, um, and I started with SALT and Celsius, so I was very, very early. I was a small investor in both of those firms and, and actually did very well by both of them, um, is as I started asking questions about the risk pricing in the crypto space, it forced me to go and learn a lot about the derivatives and synthetic finance markets of traditional markets. And I encourage you all to do that because I think you'll find that risk is better priced in the digital crypto markets than it is in sort of Wall Street and particularly among head funds and really, really high frequency trading. And I know Kenny's going to squeal about that. <laughs> all right, so, so talk about it. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the thing is, is the market resets constantly 24-7 in crypto. And that's not necessarily the case. There's inefficiencies in traditional capital markets. More importantly, because of the transparency, for the most part, there's a much greater push towards efficiency in crypto. Now, that said, that's not to say there's not criminal activity. It's not to say there's not, like, imbalances in pricing. But the mean is faster achieved in digital markets. And this is a, this is a hypothesis and I, I'm not a thousand percent convinced, but I'm 80% convinced than traditional capital markets where the system in many ways is incentivized to not be as efficient as it could be. Interesting. Yeah. I always, I always kind of view it through the lens of information asymmetry is where most inefficiencies in markets come out of. So potentially the, some of these cryptographic or cryptography solutions will actually solve some of this. 
but uh, while we're talking about the intersection between old and new finance, uh, Chris had a question about tokenization of real world assets, uh, real estate being the most popular. Well, before we do that, I just want to say I have a, a, a phrase that I use to describe all of this, which is new capital markets, mm-hmm. because I do think, first off, anyone who says this is all securities is wrong. Anyone who says this is all derivatives or commodities is wrong. It's a new kind of capital market. And I think it's important for us to begin thinking about this, both from a legislation, but also from a, as an industry, separating ourselves from those other legacy systems and calling ourselves something new. You know, the internet, if it had just called itself commerce web, would have been regulated and taxed much earlier and wouldn't have been allowed to evolve and, and become such an interesting, um, amazing place for, for innovation and entrepreneurialism. Um, so uh, tokenization of assets, uh, art, the capital, real estate. So I, I, uh, I was one of the people behind a project called 2X three years ago. So 22X, if you don't know what it was, was we took all of the companies in the 22nd cohort of 500 startups and we took a fixed equity slice across all of them at a fixed $10 million valuation. And we syndicated that as a security token. Um, we were way too early. Many of the things we were doing, we had to go and invent software to do <laughs> because like, it didn't work. We ended up working with a guy named Carlos and a small company called Securitize, which at the time, it was, very, it was unclear they would be around for the 10-year fund cycle. But what was fascinating about this is it made you realize how all of these illiquid assets, and, and by assets, I mean all of those things, they're, unless you have large bags of money, it's very hard to get a, a piece of them. And again, it makes the markets inefficient, non-transparent, and less effective. And it's hard to borrow against them. There's a million reasons why those assets are, that's a whole bunch of value locked up. So the idea of digitizing these and allowing them to be tokenized and fractionalized and used as hypothecated and all of the things you want to do, I think that's amazing. Um, However, I always go back to the first principle of risk, right? We don't really understand the risk yet. We don't really have good ways of guaranteeing that that asset is actually tied to the digital asset. You still sort of fall back on traditional old world contracts and legal systems. And I think in many ways, all of this digital stuff confuses people about the actual risk of the tie between the digital contract and the physical thing. And so I, I'm very convinced that this is the future, but I'm also not convinced that we've quite achieved where we need to achieve with, uh, at that level of the protocol. Well, one of the bits that keeps our people out of the market in general um, from, from, all, from all levels is uh, the peer on-ramp problem. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how it will be solved and how- Wait, it- You dropped out, sorry. What did you ask? Oh, um, the fiat on-ramp problem that, that right. we have globally. A, would it be possible for you to compare it kind of on a global scale uh, by geography, um, who's faster, who's slower, and, uh, and what are some of the solutions that you see to help more individuals actually engage with the uh, digital asset market? Well, it's funny. I took a lot of heat when I, so I'm, I'm a, a senior advisor and a, a advisory board member at the Creative Destruction Lab. It's one of the biggest accelerators in the world. And when we joined the Libra, what it was called then, the Libra Foundation, I took a lot of heat from my peers, both in the crypto world, but also in Silicon Valley, who were like, what are you doing? Facebook's the devil, blah, blah, blah. And I said, listen, like the only way we can achieve sort of universal well-being is by creating entrepreneurial access to markets and customers globally. And one of the biggest blockers outside of the Western world is this ability to have your money be, be, have value both inside and outside your geographic walls. The other thing about it is, is 
all of the traditional financial instruments small businesses use in America don't really exist in even in places like Slovenia or Slovakia, forget Africa or India or Southeast Asia. And so the reason I joined and got involved in what was then Libra now called Diem is that I really believe on-ramps and off-ramps are absolutely critical to driving not just the development of the blockchain as a technology, but the world economy and frankly, a leveling of the playing field uh, for participation in it. That said, I think that as, as William Gibson said, the future is here, it's just not well distributed. Um, the announcement of Bitcoin being sovereign currency in El Salvador got a lot of news, but what most people don't know is that if you go to El Salvador and go surfing, which I have done, you can actually buy things in Bitcoin right there over the Lightning Network. And so this is not just a press release by a corrupt legislator. This is actually a test bed for a super interesting use of Bitcoin, which I'm not sure is the right technology. There are seven other countries in Latin America and Southeast Asia, or sorry, in, uh, in Africa, who are considering legislation to do the same thing. And at that point, that becomes something very interesting. Um, in Africa, I don't know if anyone here has spent a lot of time in Africa. I've spent a little bit of time. I have estimates there. The M-Pesa network has sort of defined a way of digital payments, which is very blockchain compatible, but not yet perfectly connected. And so I think that's a market that will move faster into the digital world from the traditional world. Um, an analogy I would use is when I was in my late early 20s, I rode a motorcycle from the south, north of Vietnam to the south. I was one of the first Americans people there had ever met since they'd been at war with us. And I, I remember going into towns that we'd sleep at these like guest houses on grass mats and there'd be a guy, usually a gangster, who was in the town who had a big cell phone, like one of the brick cell phones sitting on a table in the middle of the town and people would walk up and throw a few bottles on the table and grab his phone and make a phone call. And I was like, what's that? And they were like, blah, 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 blah. They eventually came out, that's a pay phone. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that guy has a phone and he's renting it out. And I realized that Vietnam was never going to have copper wire phone lines. Mm. It was never going to happen. And so I use that analogy here to describe digital, the, the, the digital payment networks particularly Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and blockchain payment networks, in many places, this will be the first and only digital money. And it'll happen really fast. Mm -hmm. So I think El Salvador is the beginning. I am not someone who wants to pick winners. Is it a, is it Bitcoin? Is it DM? Is it all of them? I have no idea, right? Like, I think that we just can't make those bets right now. But I do think you can see from a trend line that Money and markets are becoming digital much faster than the regulators and or geopolitical influence can stop them. It's interesting. I had this thought a couple of days ago that um, if you're, if it doesn't happen much, but a new country or one that's just gone through a lot of turmoil, if you're going to do first principles and try to figure out what your new currency is going to be, it's, it's not going to be a reserve currency. It's not going to be a fiat currency. You are going to choose a crypto. So it's just inevitable that every country is going to go through this and then that's going to become the new standard. Um, but circling oh, back, that's absolutely right. yeah, and circling back I mean, to the on-ramp, on I'd love to, to take it back to the U.S. How is U.S.'s position here? Is it versus Venezuela's on one extreme, U.S. <laughs> on the other? Well, this, so yeah. Venezuela, I have to be careful here. So I've been to Venezuela before, um, before obviously it went really badly. And there was a thriving digital black economy there. But it was very much like meet a guy in an alley and give him some what I'm giving him and he would give, he would transfer some Bitcoin to you. And it was super risky and dangerous, but fascinating. Um, and a lot of that has to do with corruption and border controls. Um, 
So a lot of people left Venezuela and they wanted to take some money with them. And even at the incredibly inflated prices, at that time, Bitcoin in America was like twelve dollars to $14,000. And in Venezuela, it's seventeen dollars to $27,000 uh, on a daily basis fluctuating. Um, but the thing is, you could memorize your, your seed phrase and you walk across the border and fly to Spain and then have your money again. And that was very valuable to people who needed geographic portability. I want to sort of say something about America, though, because your question, it's really interesting, right? I think America for the last five years, has, and what we saw in Congress over the last three weeks is more evidence of this. We are currently in danger of becoming a digital financial backwater. And because we, are, we believe that we are leader in the space and we sort of, our banking system defines the rest of the world, our currency is a reserve currency of many countries, you know, we keep pointing at this thing called Bretton Woods that was a hastily negotiated agreement during war as sort of evidence that this is always going to be the case. And, and the thing, digital and transformational technology over the last 50 years of my life has taught me is that nothing ever stays the same. And in fact, the more reliant you are that that, that homeostasis is going to happen, the more it will change suddenly and absolutely. And I think right now that change is happening and America is actually way behind um, and things like we see in Congress right now are pushing companies and innovation offshore. So I got a call last week to join the board uh, of a famous protocol. And they said, listen, the only thing is you have to move outside the U.S. You can only spend six months or less in the U.S. You can't spend anymore. And I was like, wow, that's super specific and really <laughs> interesting. They're like, you know, you know, you can be an American citizen. We're fine with that. You just can't be physically resident in the United States. And they're like, you'll just spend two months a year in Zug and you can spend the other four months anywhere you want, but not in America. And I, I, I bring this up because that's never happened in the history of technology before. Never. Think about that for a minute, is that America is suddenly the non-desirable place to build your innovative technology company. It's fascinating. Nice bombshell to, to, uh, to end on right before we go to our breakout rooms. So uh, we'll have another chance to do questions after the, this breakout room. But just so you know what to expect, uh, a couple housekeeping items. It's, uh, it's, it's not a pitch. It's a networking. So please, let's be respectful of that. Be kind to one another. And the big one is we don't send out a participant list. So if you find somebody you want to connect with, swap details um, and or join our Telegram group and you can connect there. Isla, do you want to uh, break out? Yeah, happy to. So if that the breakout room is ready for you all, you should be about four to five people in each room. Um, the question to chat about is, what do you think is keeping institutions from getting involved in this ecosystem? Risk is one, involves custody, et cetera, but there's so many different aspects to it. Um, what do you think are the main triggers that would actually move uh, the institutions into the digital asset space? I'll open all rooms now and we'll see you all later. All right, Mr. Titus. And as a reminder, you probably are muted, but uh, I have a Honestly, this is not well-formed question. So just run a ramble and you can ramble back. Um, yeah. Institutions specifically. So a lot of financial institutions yeah. are in the U.S. Um, they have a regulatory moat around them. And mm -hmm. do how do we think that the interplay is between these large U.S.-based financial institutions, their moat, and the fact, as you say, that, uh, how did you put it? The U.S. is at a risk of becoming a digital backwater. Are they related or are they something separate? So here's what's really interesting to me. Um, I, I, a little background. I always tell a story. I can't help it. Sorry. So I was chief executive of the digital part of the Daily Mail. 
And, and this is the strangest job I ever had. I left the BBC to do it. And the BBC, I was doing product development. That made a lot of sense to people. When I got hired by the Daily Mail, people were like, what the hell? But the Daily Mail had a very classic problem. They were a big newspaper business that when they saw like the rise of digital classifieds, motors, travel, dating, they just bought them all in every country they could find them. But they didn't really have a strategy. And there was nobody who ran digital. Those were all like subsumed under the traditional print brands. And they were all like dying because these print guys would just take the cash to fund their you know existing lazy print businesses. So they rolled all the digital assets in one holding vehicle, maybe CEO. And we became very successful. In fact, to this day, the Daily Mail online is one of the biggest digital newspapers. The classifieds portfolio makes prints money. Um, they're not very nice people, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> so in capital markets, I would argue, and Ben is chuckling because that's how we met actually is in the BBC. So the capital markets world of investment banks, hedge funds, broker dealers, I could run through all the sort of litany of players. The same thing is about to happen to them that happened to the newspaper industry, right? And so natural selection is about to apply itself very viciously to this, to this world. You're going to see a chunk of these people, you know, Michael Saylor and people like this do very, very well when they embrace early and they start really, you know, treating this as a new, interesting place to play. And it is a long-term bet, you know, uh, Catherine at Arc is another great example. Some of them will spend their time giving people like Elizabeth Warren and uh, Yellen and some of the other political people money to slow down the innovation. This same thing happened in the newspaper business. Everyone's forgotten this, but like I was part of web 1.0. I founded a company called Tag Media, became Razorfish. And I watched, you know, in, in entrenched players try and litigate and regulate their way out of the sort of, to slow down the innovation so they could milk the assets. By the way, the, the, the most successful exercise of this was automotive and tire companies slowing down electric cars, but it didn't really work, did it? Tesla's, you know, multi-billion dollar company. And like, it never works this strategy, but they will continue to try it. And so there'll be a chunk of people who get wiped out as the transformation happens. There'll be a chunk of people who make a lot of money and there'll be a chunk of people who muddle through and either are acquired or acquire their way into the future. But it is probably one of the best times to be an entrepreneur. And I tell all the young people when I go speak at universities, like if you have to pick one or two things to focus on, blockchain for sure should be one of those things. You know, should the other be artificial intelligence or quantum computing? I don't really have an opinion about that. Like just pick one that's really interesting and be like, but blockchain is absolutely, to me, as obviously important as the internet was 10 years ago. That's brilliant. Awesome. Great. Um, Isla, are you ready with more breakout rooms? Yeah, we'll do another one. What are the opportunities in the crypto space that you have seen but passed up on, uh, either for the good or for the worse? Well, in the right. last years? we'll pop it into breakout rooms. I think everybody has passed on a few of these. <laughs> and we'll see you back here just before the hour. Okay, see you soon. Bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed your room. Uh, our room was a case study. Sometimes we don't necessarily stay on topic because it was entirely discussing 90s hip hop. And Richard, I believe at one point you were compared to Snoop Dogg in a very good way. So thank you. Oh, really? That's yeah. funny. Apparently I Snoop love Snoop. Dogg. Actually, I, I met Snoop Dogg when he, before he was famous. And the most random thing, I was in the studio next to him mastering an electronic music album. Ah. And he was mastering his record that became a you know triple platinum record. And we kept smelling this funny smell. I'll leave you to imagine what that smell was. <laughs> and so we went over to hanging out for like two hours. <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to do the wrap. 
Yeah, we're going to do the wrap up here because we're at the top of the hour. We like to be punctual. Uh, join Telegram. I guess I'm just ordering people now. That's great. Um, Mr. Titus is already there. So you can continue the conversation and questions going in that direction. Uh, oh, we're doing this. Uh, so this week I am presenting at a uh, FLIA, Florida actually, Association of Alternative Investments. Yep. So yep. if you have interest in that, please join. I won't be the only person there, but it should be a good session um, all about crypto and stable fly, which is our new fund. And then um, betting on regenerative medicine is our topic next week, same time, 10 a.m. Central, as always. Awesome. So we hope to see you all out there and in Telegram in the interim. Isla, what did I miss? All good. Uh, big thank you to uh, Richard. It's going to be a phenomenal little transcript uh, that'll go out next week. And uh, really grateful to everybody who shows up in the middle of August. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again, Richard. Thanks, guys. I put my Bye. contact details in the chat, but uh, my Twitter is our Richard Titus. Uh, at Richard Titus, and my email is Titus at Andronic.us. Beautiful. I'll put that into the into our little Telegram group, so it'll be available for everybody. Awesome. See you guys. Beautiful. Thanks, Thanks so everybody much. for coming out. Appreciate it. Bye. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to Diffuse Tap with Isla Krem and Kenny Estes. If you enjoyed these conversations, join us for the live version every Wednesday ish at 10 a.m. Central. In addition to the fireside chat, the live event features three rounds of networking in small groups with alternative fund GPs, LPs, and supporters from around the world. Log on to www.diffusefunds.com to register yourself now.